So, of all the ways that New Testament Scripture could have begun, 400 years between the end of the Hebrew Bible and the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. 400 years between the time of Christ. Now, Matthew, of course, was written a bit later, but this single page in your Bible, you may have articles and all kinds of things separating the Old and New Testaments. Mine just has the single page that says the New Testament. And so that represents about 400 years until the coming of the Messiah, the birth of Christ Jesus. And of all the ways they could have started New Testament Scripture, they start with a list of names. And I know as I was reading that, you all were just on the edge of your seats this morning. You were just absolutely enthralled. You know, come on, preacher. Yeah. Woo. Pronounce those funny names. You know... Might have gotten some of them right. Some of them, I got no idea. I'll just tell you. But, I learned a long time ago, if you say it with confidence and just keep on going, it works pretty well. If there are any Hebrew scholars uh, in the audience this morning that... uh, that take issue, well then come see me afterward and I'll, I'll be all ears. But... This word genealogy, it's the place that they get the word Genesis. And it means the beginning. And so, just as Genesis was the beginning of the story of a world that God created, and the story of a people that He would enter into a covenant relationship with, This story of Jesus begins in a similar fashion. It's sort of, you might say, this list of funny, not easy to pronounce names gives us an origin story for New Testament Scripture. And the Jewish audience that Matthew wrote his gospel for would have certainly picked up on some things. Certainly the first thing they would have noticed are these names in the beginning. The genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham and David, two very important figures in Jewish history. Abraham was that first patriarch that God said, I am going to enter into a covenant with you, and you are going to be the father of a great nation. Now, of course, we get all the way through the book of Genesis, and it's still just 70 people. But some of you have heard me say before, boy, we turn that page to Exodus 1, and we see God's promise fulfilled. Because the king of Egypt is getting nervous at the size of these enslaved people. The sheer number of these people. 
probably numbering some one and a half to three million people by the time they actually left Egypt. A promise made and a promise kept. And then, of course, the covenant that was made with David when he was king, being told, your line will never be interrupted. And so that is exactly what Matthew is trying to draw to his Jewish audience. That this that started with Abraham and went on to David, that lasted and continued through the exile, that here it is still going on in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And so people would have picked up on some of these names. They would have noticed something kind of strange off the bat. That in this list of names that there were female names listed. Something that in ancient genealogies was just not something that was done. And of course we get In the latter part of this, we get some names that are not found anywhere else in Holy Scripture. We don't see them, we don't find them when we dig into books like Chronicles. And so scholars suppose that Matthew would have had uh, had access to some names at the temple. That the temple records when those firstborn males would have been dedicated at the temple. That their names would have been recorded. And and so that is where Matthew gets this. But those names of people like Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. Tamar, a Canaanite woman whose rights were abused by men. Rahab, a Gentile and a prostitute who protected the spies that Joshua had sent across the river to see what they could find. And they came across a woman who says, we've all heard. We've all heard what you've done east of the Jordan. How you conquered those kings over there. And we're terrified, quite frankly. And so I'm the last person, she tells them in so many words, who's going to stand in your way. As a matter of fact, here's how I can protect you. And so when they come and knock on Rahab's door and say, Did you see anybody that wasn't one of us in the city? And then she sends them in the opposite direction. She says, oh, they, they've already left. You better go and chase after them. So that posse takes off and leaves the city and then she goes and gets the spies. And so we know that this is the land that God had promised His people on oath. This land flowing with milk and honey. And the spies are able to go back and said. They've heard we're camped on this side of the Jordan. They know what we've done. And they're shaking in their boots. So let's go and take what God promised us so long ago. It's another promise made, church. And another promise that is kept. And then we find the name of Ruth. A Moabite 
Deuteronomy 23.3 says, To the tenth generation, a Moabite was not to be admitted to the congregation. But yet, God takes exceptions where God chooses to take exceptions. And we praise Him for that. Because what a powerful story Ruth's is. A powerful story of loyalty. A woman who proclaims on that desert journey where her mother-in-law says, y'all just go ahead and turn back. And one of of Naomi's daughters-in-law does. But we know that Ruth is the one who says, I'm not going to leave you. Your God will be my God and your people will be my people. And so this pagan, this Moabite, makes that journey back to Naomi's home. And we know how she is blessed. I heard a preacher once say she goes from working in those fields to owning those fields. And so what a powerful story is Ruth's. Matthew makes it clear that these non-Jewish women were in the royal line of Jesus. Uriah is named when he doesn't even need to be, except that, except that that seems to be the exact point that Matthew is trying to make. He's saying, hey, yeah, he's the greatest king that we've ever had. But oh, oh man, remember, remember, he made some serious, serious mistakes. He's an adulterer, he's a murderer. And furthermore, he knew him. We look at 1 Chronicles 11, 10 and 11. These were the chiefs of David's mighty warriors. Referred to in scripture as David's mighty men in some translations. They together with all Israel gave his kingship strong support to extend it over the whole land as the Lord had promised. And so then beginning in verse 11 we find this lengthy list of names once again. Some of them hard to pronounce, just like the ones we see in Matthew 1. But there's one that always stands out to me. I think it's long about verse 22, 23, somewhere in there. We hear about Benaniah. He's the guy who defeated the mightiest warriors of Moab. And then on a snowy day, he followed a lion into a pit. Now, you talk about courage, church. I'm the guy that sees the lion, and I hope the lion doesn't see me. You want to know how mighty these guys were? This is a guy that follows the lion into a pit on a snowy day, it says. And so, that shows you the, the, the kind of might, the kind of courage, the kind of veracity that these men possessed. And the chronicler tells us that they, together with all Israel, gave his kingship, David's kingship, strong support to extend it over the whole land as the Lord had 
promised. But then you get down to verse 41. And it names Uriah the Hittite. He knew him, church. He knew him. When he calls him to the palace, hoping that he's going to do what David would have done, I guess that he would have gone and visited his wife. And so then when the baby shows up nine months later, that, that he, you know, everybody thinks, oh, well, yeah, yeah, Uriah came home some time ago. No big deal. But he doesn't expect that Uriah is the kind of guy who cares so much about his men that he says, if my men cannot go home and sleep in their beds with their wives, I'm not going to either. And so here we have a man after God's own heart that's an adulterer and a murderer. And Matthew specifically wants to remind us of that. Not that he's calling David out as someone who's less than, but because Matthew wants to remind us of God's infinite capacity to forgive. That church is what Matthew is drawing us to. That's the conclusion he wants us to come to. Is that there is a God who says, look at this line of the Savior and look who all is in it. And we're going to get back to that in just a moment. It was 1945, World War II had drawn to a close and a young man sat broken in a POW camp. He had been a reluctant soldier in Hitler's army. And here inside a, prisoner, a prison in Scotland, he had months to contemplate what had been and what was to come. The cities of his homeland had been reduced to rubble and the people were impoverished. His sleep was filled with repeating nightmares in which the terrors of warfare were lived over and over and over. And then came... What was worst of all, he wrote, in September 1945 in Camp 22 in Scotland, we were confronted with pictures of Belson and Auschwitz. They were pinned up in one of the huts without comment. Slowly, the truth filtered into our awareness and we saw ourselves mirrored in the eyes of the Nazi victims. Was this what we had fought for? Had my generation as the last been driven to our deaths so that the concentration camp murderers could go on killing and Hitler could live a few months longer? The depression over the wartime destruction and a captivity without any apparent end was exacerbated by feelings of profound shame and having to share in this disgrace. Disgrace. It was undoubtedly the hardest thing, a stranglehold that choked us, this young German soldier wrote. An unshakable shame saturated his being, and the only future he could see stretched out before him was one that was filled with despair. 
Yet it was in the midst of this shame and despair that God found him. A visiting chaplain gave the soldier a Bible, and with little else to do, he began reading it. In the lament psalms, he heard resonant voices, the agony of people who felt God had abandoned them. In the story of Christ crucified, he encountered a God who knew what it was to experience suffering, abandonment, and shame. Feeling utterly forsaken himself, the German soldier found a friend in the one who cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In 1947, he was given permission to attend a Christian conference that brought together young people from across the world. The Dutch participants asked to meet the German POWs who had fought in the Netherlands. The young soldier was one of them. He went to meet to, to the meeting full of fear, guilt, and shame, feelings that intensified as the Dutch Christians spoke of the pain Hitler and his allies had inflicted, of the dread the Gestapo bred in their hearts, of the family and friends they had lost, of the disrupt, disruption and damage to their communities. Yet the Dutch Christians didn't speak out of a spirit of vindictiveness but came to offer forgiveness. It was completely unexpected. These Dutch Christians embodied the love the German soldier had read about in the story of Christ, and it turned his life upside down. He discovered that despite all that had passed, God looked on us, he wrote, with the shining eyes of eternal joy that there was hope for the future. That German soldier was a guy named Jürgen Maltman. He would go on to attend a seminary. He would minister to a congregation. He would go on to be a professor in Europe. He would go on to be one of the best-known theologians of the 20th century. He would go on to write a book called The Crucified God that helped bring a lot of people to Christ. Because that's how God works, doesn't it, church? That God, working through the stories of the people that we see in Matthew 1, was still working through the life of a reluctant German soldier in the 1940s. Someone who in the, the 60s and 70s that many papers were written. Who am I kidding? They're still being written today that bear him as the subject or that bear some of his writings as references. And so the love shown those, by those Dutch Christians that said, this is what we experienced, but we want you to know that we forgive you. Because they were reflecting God's infinite capacity to forgive. And I know, here we are, the final Sunday before Christmas. And many of you came adorned in red just to make sure I would remember 
And here we are talking about this stuff, this list of names. But church, this is who the family of Jesus is, isn't it? This is what what Matthew wanted us to know. This is what Matthew wanted us to, to not miss. That this family is made up of heroes, but it's also made up of prostitutes. It's made up of good kings, but it's also made up of evil kings. It's made up of adulterers and murderers. And that that's the family of Jesus. And so if you've come here this morning, a person who maybe feels broken, a person who maybe can remember some of your own sin as I can mine, we're reminded that if we have repented of that sin, that the God we serve... The God who gave us a Savior remembers that sin no longer. Why was David called a man after God's own heart? With what he had done? Because when Nathan confronted him with his sin, he repented. He said, I have sinned against God. God. And that church made all the difference in the world. Because our God loves us so much that yes, He gave us a Savior. Not to condemn the world, but to save the world, right? That God has an infinite capacity to forgive. And He wants us to as well. Because the family line of Jesus is a line of sinners. And if you're here this morning with us, I want you to be reassured that you fit right in. That there is room for you in the family of Jesus. We look over to 1 John chapter 4 and we read these words beginning with verse 7 dear friends let us love one another for love comes from God everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God whoever does not love does not know God because God is love this is how God showed his love among us he sent his one and only son into the world that we might Live through Him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and His love is made complete in us. And church family, that's what I want you to take with you today. Not just that if you are a person who has repented, that you are a person who is forgiven. But what do you do with this great love? This tremendous love that shows this amazing capacity to forgive. That we go on and love one another. 
the way God loves us. Now, let me remind you. Let me remind me too. It's easy to love the people that are like us. It's easy to love the people we like in the first place. Some people are amazingly easy to love. And then there are those that are amazingly difficult to love. And so we understand how this works, right? We just love the ones that are easy and we don't worry about the ones that are difficult, right? Well, of course not. Because what if God loved in that way? What if God loved the people that were easy to love and just wrote off everyone else? How many of us might not be in the Lamb's book of life if that were the case? The idea that Jesus atoning sacrifice on the cross that John has reminded us of was limited. That it was only for certain people. Because that's the way the world has worked, right? There are all kinds of things where certain people are included and certain people aren't. If I go to a hockey game at Bridgestone Arena, or if you go to a concert, well you got to have that ticket that gets you in, right? If you didn't pay the price of admission, then you're not included. It's that simple. You can't just go up and say, Hey, I'm a fan. I'm ready. Woohoo! They're going to say, Well, come on in, fan. Have a good time. Enjoy the game. Enjoy the concert. No. you got to pay money. That's what allows you to be included. There are all kinds of clubs. There are all kinds of things. I was looking at the, the people in a company recently. And just out of curiosity, I clicked on their bio, biographical information. The people at the top. Guess where they had degrees from? Harvard, Yale... Columbia, Northwestern. If they did go to a public school, it was Michigan or Virginia, which are considered among the top five public schools in the nation. Yeah. People that went to elite schools got the elite positions. Now, if you filtered on down there far enough, you saw somebody that went like, you know, University of Texas or something like that. No knock against Texas, but it's not... Harvard and Yale and Princeton and Columbia. And so it's a reminder that in the world you've got to have a certain pedigree. But we look at the the pedigree of Jesus and it's made up of sinful people just like you and me. And we should be praising God for that. No, church, when Jesus shed His blood on the cross, it wasn't for the people that are easy to live, to love. It wasn't for the people that are good enough. It was for all of humanity. That God loves all 
of humanity. God even loves those German soldiers who committed all those atrocities some decades ago. And so, when we read the words of John in 1 John 4, and he says, Dear friends, since God loved us, we also ought to love one another. Then that's what we should take with us today, church. That we are called... To love everyone. Even the people that don't look like us, the people that don't think like us, the people that don't vote like us, the people that don't, and the list can go on and on and on and on. Some of you like chocolate gravy. I still love you. I do. Those two words will never go together in my mind. Never. I think it was Jenny Brewer that dragged me down to the kitchen several years ago and said, Preacher, you've got to try this. I know you haven't had it. And I did. And I said, Jenny, I love you. But I don't think I'll ever eat this again. I just don't. It just, it doesn't work. And some of y'all are like, Preacher, you don't know what you're missing. I do. I tried it. I do. I know what I'm missing. And it's just not for me. Okay, and that's a humorous example of how we might differ. But when the Dutch people could forgive the German soldiers who ripped their country apart and did awful things, and that a young guy named Jurgen Maltman is able to say, you know what? This is the same love I read about when I was handed a copy of God's Word. Church, that's the challenge for us. That's the part of Christmas we need to take with us into the new year. That we love in such a way that people say, that's the kind of love I've heard about and that's the kind of love I've read about. Let's be those people who have an amazing capacity to forgive and to love. That is what God is calling us to do. If you're with us this morning...